It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 498. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. The first Monday of every month, we open up the episode to you, your questions. And if you have a question you'd like us to consider for a future episode here, the first Monday of every month, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the very best way to get it to us for consideration. I am glad to welcome Bonnie back to the show, who is here almost every month to help me in responding to questions. Hello, Bonnie. Good to see you. Hello, Dave. So we have a bunch of questions as always. Uh, Let's just dive in right away with our first question from Rajat. Rajat says, I'm a startup founder and CTO, that's Chief Technical Officer, and it has become clear to me that I should have some structure in place for my department in terms of areas of responsibility, processes, metrics, performance reviews, etc. The problem is I have no idea how to start. This is not something I've learned or experienced before. Do you know of a framework or something similar I can use as a guideline to make sure I'm asking the right questions to get the foundations for this down? Rajat, thank you for asking this question. I do know a bunch of frameworks. Uh, Some of them we've talked about on the show over the years. Uh, Some of them I know of from other folks who have been successful entrepreneurs who have used frameworks. So because your question is fairly broad, I'm going to give you a few different ways you may think about this, and I'm sure Bonnie will have some ideas or suggestions as well, too. But So first, on the big picture, what would be some overall good frameworks to look at? There's a couple of books that I think are extraordinarily useful for business leaders and entrepreneurs to be able to utilize as models for strategy and structure. One of them is someone we have featured on the show before, Alex Osterwalder. He was on the show most recently talking about how to keep a company invincible. He really uh, made his name on the map, though, from his earlier book, Business Model Generation. And it is a really useful, simple, but powerful framework for framing a business model. So this isn't exactly your question, but I wanted to mention it because it is in the context of this question that this also comes up too of like, what's the right business model? How can I consider different revenue sources? What do customers look like? So I think business model generation is a helpful book to know about. And it's one um, I've used before, we've used, I think Bonnie's used before too in projects. So I'd certainly suggest that. More in line specifically with your question is a book I really like called Scaling Up by Vern Harnish and the folks over at Gazelles. Scaling Up is a incredibly useful book for just about anything that you may need on strategy. And their team did a meta-analysis of all of the different strategy models out there, things like Good to Great and so many of the other models that we've heard of over the years, and really put together some of the best practices. And Scaling Up is a wonderful resource book, and I, an emphasis on the word resource It is probably not a book that you would start and read cover to cover. It is the kind of book that you would pick up when, for example, you need to write a job description, or you are thinking about different roles within the organization, or you're thinking about cash flow, or you're thinking about performance. 
they have a section in that for just about everything. And they also have wonderful tools and models on their website. So I think scaling up is a wonderful place to start. It is generally my first recommendation for anyone who's looking for an overall strategy model. The other two that I know of that also get rave reviews, and I know leaders and businesses that have used both very successfully, is the Entrepreneurial Operating System by Gina Wickman. I don't know the details of it, but I know it's a very popular model, and it's one that would be worth looking at, probably looking at that and scaling up. And the other person that's uh, really big in the space that I've heard of many times is Mike McCallowitz. I hope I'm saying Mike's name right. He has a number of books out on focusing on helping entrepreneurs to really build great frameworks and models that will help them to be successful in their work. So I think I don't think you can go wrong with any of those. I think the thing that you, you might start with is take a look at scaling up, take a look at the EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, Mike Michalowicz's work, and see what resonates with you. You might even grab a couple of those books and just kind of get a feel for, they all have different styles, they all have different ways of going about it, but like a good personal fitness program, there are lots of ways to do it that work well if you use the system well and do it consistently. So, uh, So those would be places to start. Within our library, here's a few specific places I'd go as you're at this place right now of thinking about framework and teams. One place to start for any team and any organization is framing team guidelines. We've talked about that on the show a few times before. Susan Gerke is our go-to expert on that. Episode 192 would be a great start for you, Rajat, on thinking about what would be the things I would do to create good team guidelines with my organization. On performance measurement, Stacy Barr is really useful. She's been on the show twice before. She's got some wonderful ideas on helping leaders to frame performance measurement. And then speaking of performance, when we look at the performance management side of it, of giving performance reviews, feedback, and of course, regular coaching, Michael Bungay-Stanier and I did an episode a while back, uh, episode 361, The Truth and Lies of Performance Management. And this has actually come up a lot in recent weeks in our Academy conversations and from other listener questions on how to handle performance reviews. And there are a lot of different things happening these days on performance reviews. And we've all heard stories of companies either setting aside performance reviews or simplifying or not using ratings anymore. And the last time I've seen some research on this that Michael has done, it looks like the reality is that people are kind of all over the map on this right now as far as organizations. Some organizations are doing some really innovative, different things. Some organizations are not. And there's a lot of people doing things that are kind of in between. But for sure, the trend is more regular, informal feedback and more coach-like behavior. And we talk in detail about that on episode 361. So that would be a wonderful resource for you. So at the danger of overwhelming you with too much, Rajat, there's a starting point for you on some helpful models. And I'll have all that in the notes, of course, too. Uh, Bonnie might have some additional thoughts as well. I wanted to share that one of the places you can find additional resources might be a small business association where you live. They, a lot of times, will have some resources for you around performance management and also your labor department as well. I can recall in my own experience working for a startup and then as it began to grow and need to go from being more entrepreneurial to more professional, not that you're ever not completely professional, but just that that uh, common pattern that, that happens where kind of everyone's all hands on deck. When everyone is all hands on deck, then it's important to understand the different functions inside an organization. And you might be chief technology officer, but you're also founder. You may also be over human resources. You may also be over 
research and development. I mean, when you're small like that and you're starting up, a lot of people play a lot of roles, but it's still helpful. They have sort of overall groupings of types of functions within an organization that can be helpful to think through. And then as you grow, you can start to identify what are some of the more specialized roles that you may begin to want to hire for. And that I haven't looked at the data in a while. I suspect it's probably gotten even better than the last time I looked, but they'll have information about the average salary for that type of a role. They'll also have information about the average educational attainment that has been made by people filling that role and also the types of expertise and experience that they have, any sort of certifications they may have or or just overall experience. So hopefully those resources will be helpful to you as well. Thanks so much for the question, Rajat. Hope this is helpful to you. Let us know which one of these models you dive into. I'd love to hear what uh, what works. Let's see. Our next question here comes in from Kathy. Kathy asked us, Bonnie, in moments of personal frustration at work, what is your trick to let it go? I have a couple of thoughts for you. One is a really easy thought process. I mean, easy. (laughs) Maybe I should put that in air quotes. Is there an audio air quotes I can use, Dave? Uh, (laughs) Is it one of those simple but not easy? Yeah. Yeah. So I try to interrupt that personal frustration. So one way that I try to interrupt it is to go for a quick 10 minute walk. And it's been pretty hot here where Dave and I live. So we're not doing this quite as much, but when the weather cools down, we'll certainly be doing this a lot during our days because that can help reduce that frustration. It also can help reduce any kind of stress. And I find it really can invigorate me, especially if we do it right around two or three. My circadian rhythm tends to really lull right about three in the afternoon. And so that's a nice way to get a pick me up, but also to help get rid of, not get rid of, by the way, notice I I use the word interrupt. I want to interrupt that frustration because I still, I still have it, but it just helps put things in a little bit more perspective and on a deeper work, deeper reflection type of recommendation, I I highly recommend the book called Leadership and Self-Deception. It's a very difficult book for me to describe, and Dave, I'll welcome you if you want to help describe it better than I'm about to, but it's it's hard to explain because I, I if I were to try to explain it well, I wouldn't do it justice because it's so deep and so rich, but essentially, well, the title is Leadership and Self-Deception. It's kind of like the lies that we tell ourselves in our own head that hold us back from being our most effective. And sometimes we think other people are doing these things to us. This person is causing me to feel or do X, Y, or Z versus really having a fine appreciation for the power that we really have of choice. And Dave, I've been mentioning to you recently, I need to go back and reread it because I I mean, I remember it so vividly all these years later, but I suspect there probably would be additional layers that I would discover if I were to reread it now. So thanks for the question, Kathy. And Dave, what do you have to share? Uh, Well, I'll second the recommendation for leadership and self-deception. I think it's a little better known now than it used to be. It it used to be the book that no one had ever heard of, but it's the best leadership book no one's ever heard of. I've loved it too, and I've read it a couple of times, and it is super helpful for moments like this, um, Kathy, where you're finding that struggle, especially with others. Um, And of course, so much of that struggle tends to be rooted in our own behaviors and their own way of thinking. The thing that works for me, I would say two things are really helpful to me when I get in those moments of personal frustration. One of them is interrupting in some way. For me, what tends to work, similar to Bonnie's thought, what tends to work for me is just delaying doing anything about it to allow myself to have that emotional, frustrating response. 
And if it's something that really pushes my buttons, I've sort of learned over the years to just sit on it for a day, assuming I can, or at least a couple of hours. And that way work through kind of the initial anger or disappointment or whatever thing that I'm feeling and then let the logical parts of my brain to take over a little bit more. That's not always possible to do, but I do find that in most situations I can usually delay responding by an hour or two or the next business day. And that oftentimes there's something about getting a good night's sleep and waking up the next morning and the thing that seemed really, really, really difficult the day before may still seem really difficult, but a lot of the emotion has settled. And so I find that to be really useful for me to then be able to move forward in a much more um, helpful way. The other thing that I consciously will think is, in a year from now, am I going to care about this? And if the answer to that is yes, which rarely it is, <laughs> then I'll spend more time thinking through, okay, how do I want to respond or handle this situation or pull out my difficult conversations book, which is another great uh, resource, and think about how I might work through this situation. Most of the time, the answer to that question is no, that a year from now, this is not going to be a big deal or it's not going to set a precedent for something. And so in those situations, it's not that I just necessarily let it go entirely, but I try to think of my response in the context of, okay, I'm not going to care about this a year from now, so let me handle this in a helpful, thoughtful way, but let me also try to keep myself from getting completely overwhelmed by it or too caught up in it. And and that's where, Kathy, and maybe, maybe there's a third thing here for me, is just talking with other people is super helpful too. It's so easy when something has happened that is causing us personal frustration. Either someone has wronged us or the organization has just gone the way we have been advocating for it not to go for the last six months or whatever insert problem here. Uh, I know it's helpful to me when I get perspective from others. And I do that with Bonnie, certainly often, probably most often. There's a group of other podcasters I talk to regularly that are helpful to me to kind of just check myself of like, you know, is this something that I should be concerned about, worried about? And so I find that that is super helpful of getting objective perspective and to calibrate my responses better. So I guess, yeah, I guess those three things, the just taking time, the getting perspective from others, and then asking myself a year from now, I'm going to care about this. And that helps me to calibrate and feel a little bit more in control when I find that those situations emerge for me. So I hope there's something in there, Kathy, that's that's useful to you in thinking about how you handle situations like that too. So let's go to our next question here comes in from Janet. Janet writes, we work with a lot of partners and are starting to put some more formal structure around who we call a partner and who we call friends. As part of that process, we are trying to define ways to define impact measure of partners. Basically, how do you measure the impact of a partner and the partnership? What are great partners, good partners, or so-so partners beyond the financial metrics? Do you have any resources or have any experience in this? Yes, to both of those, Janet. And uh, Janet had asked this question, Bonnie, and I went back and asked a little more, like, tell me what you mean by partners and what she said about partners is often what I call alliances, which is when two organizations are working together in some sort of structured way, and they have an agreement to do something to support each other. 
And we did an episode on this a long time ago, back on episode 162. We talked about three keys to effective business alliances. I had Aaron Kent on the show from Dale Carnegie at that time, and we kind of talked through what are some of the things that he he would use as a leader at Dale Carnegie and that I've found that's been helpful certainly over the years as well, too. And so here's three things that I think that I found to be helpful, we found to be helpful over the years, just thinking about putting together alliances and partnerships with other organizations. So first is finding some kind of overlap where you both leverage what you're good at, but you are able to form alliances in the areas where you may not be as good at. It's not your core talent. So for example, probably the classic example of this is the hedgehog concept that is from the book Good to Great, which I know many of you are familiar with. The hedgehog concept, if you're not familiar with it, is this concept that you are wanting to, as an organization, the hedgehog concept is basically focusing on the thing that you do best. And it's an overlap of three things. Uh, What are you passionate about? What can you be best in the world at? And what drives your economic engine as an organization? And by you, by the way, Janet, I'm saying you as an organization. What are you really passionate about as an organization? What are you great at, the best in the world at? And what drives revenue, economics, that helps the organization be successful? So that's your hedgehog concept, whatever that is. That's the thing that you do well, and that's, that's your focus point. All of us in our organizations do things that also are not part of that. And so with alliances or partnerships, one of the things that's super helpful to do is figure out what is each organization really good at? And the things that you're not so good at, how can another organization help out with that? And how can you be in a similar place, but not competitive? And so that's what I mean by industry overlap. What do you do that helps each other out, but you're not competing on the things that you're both really good at? And so if you can start there, that's really helpful. And of course, that begins with you as an organization figuring out what are you really good at if you haven't figured that out already. Secondly is... How do you figure out where there's going to be an outcome that's going to benefit both parties? And the key here is that it's measurable. What can you do to measure that? And the pushback that I have heard sometimes when we talk about this as well, if we're not talking about dollars, which it's not always about dollars or whatever unit of currency you're using, there's other ways to measure. So measurement may be in relationships, measurement may be in interaction points, Whatever's important to both organizations independently and collectively, there should be a way to measure that. So sometimes it is as easy as measuring a revenue number or a dollar amount, but there should be something that's measurable and it doesn't have to be money. It can be many, many things, but find a way to measure it so both organizations are clear on what you're trying to do and what you're trying to leverage from the relationship. And then finally, one of the things Aaron pointed out in that episode, and I think is super smart, is committing resources and relationships that are going to sustain that partnership or that alliance. The classic mistake, and I've made this too in alliances and partnerships in the past, is everyone gets really excited about putting together a partnership saying, hey, we'll do this thing, and you can do this thing, and you can send us business for this, and we'll send you business for that. And then nothing much really happens. Or there's maybe a single interaction or a short-term thing that happens, but it's not sustainable over time. And one of the things that I love that Aaron said is treat that relationship as valuable as you would if that person was a customer. And most of the time in a business alliance, it is not a quote unquote client relationship or customer relationship, but to treat it as such. 
to make the same investment that you would make with a client. And that means you may dedicate resources. You may dedicate an individual to oversee that relationship, to track metrics, to invest time. And that if you do that well and you do that sustainably, that that's going to provide a framework where that alliance, that partnership is going to grow over time and really be successful for both organizations. So find the overlap, find where there's a win-win for each organization that's measurable. And then finally, being able to commit the resources and to make the commitment on both sides, that there's a commitment to resources of time of attention so that the relationship is sustainable over time. When I think about partners, I think about many of the same things that Dave shared. I want to make sure that the values that I share, the the organization that I work with are in alignment with theirs. And that can be, you, you mentioned you were sort of already hinting at this in your question around beyond financial metrics. Too many times partnerships are formed on the basis of the ways in which we can scratch each other's back from a financial standpoint. And to me, that is risky, both in terms of the finances, because if that's all it's based on and there isn't a shared sense of values, then it's not going to be sustainable, but it's also not something I want to be a part of. I want to work with organizations, partner with organizations that have shared values that I do. And in the United States, at least, there is a way of expressing some of these values and these metrics beyond just the financial. And it's through a way of setting up your business as a B corporation. That's the B stands for benefit corporation. And there is a entity in the United States called a C corporation. And so the rules involved in a C corporation are such that you are required, especially if you're a publicly traded company, but you're required to have profits above other things, such as caring for one's employees well or caring for the environment. And so the B corporation way of structuring your business was set up so that you could prioritize other things above profits. And I'll just read a little bit from their website about B corporations. They meet the highest standards of verified social and environmental performance, public transparency, and legal accountability to balance profit and purpose. Society's most challenging problems cannot be solved by government and nonprofits alone. The B Corp community works toward reduced inequality, lower levels of poverty, a healthier environment, stronger communities, and the creation of more high-quality jobs with dignity and purpose. By harnessing the power of business, B Corps use profits and growth as a means to a greater end, positive impact for their employees, communities, and the environment. And I've been able to get to meet people that founded and and work with or became transformed their business into a B Corp. And it is really invigorating to hear their stories. All the way back in 2007, 82 organizations became B corporations and it's been growing ever since. So I bring that up just as a means of, even if you weren't planning on becoming a B corporation, I would encourage you to go visit their website and have a look at some of the metrics that they use that go beyond profits. And it may not necessarily, Janet, relate directly back to your question. You might not find it as as interesting in terms of thinking through your partners, but even just thinking through your own work. And are you measuring the things that matter? And I just find it inspiring every time I go 
and get a chance to meet someone else who's from a B Corporation or just to visit their website and see some of those stories. Many resources mentioned in this episode, be sure to find them in the notes or this week's weekly leadership guide if you receive that on Wednesdays. Uh, In addition, if you want to dive in on more depth on some of these questions, I'd recommend four related episodes. One of them is episode 162, Three Keys to Effective Business Alliances with Aaron Kent. I mentioned that conversation during our episode today. It is a framework for creating and also perhaps more importantly, maintaining good business alliances and partnerships. Episode 162, three steps to do that well in much more depth than I mentioned today. I'd also recommend episode 192, how to create team guidelines with Susan Gerke. It's probably one of the most often mentioned and cited episodes in our library. It has been useful to so many leaders on the beginning stages of creating expectations with a team. If you have never done that before, considered that not only with an existing team, but especially with a team forming for the first time, I would recommend episode 192 as a must listen. Also recommended episode 361, The Truth and Lies of Performance Management. Michael Bungay-Stanier, the best-selling author of The Coaching Habit, and I talked through in that episode some of the trends in performance management, how different organizations are handling that, and what is true regardless of what's different in organizations, what's true amongst many organizations. And one of those key findings is that organizations, regardless of how they're handling performance management, are really working on becoming more coach-like and also giving feedback at much more regular intervals. Uh, Lots of details on that in episode 361. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 419, Performance Measurements That Get Results. Stacey Barr was my guest on that episode. She's an expert in performance measurement, and we really talked through in detail some of the key principles around good performance measurement. It's not the things you would think in many organizations, unfortunately, uh, don't always do this in the most effective ways. If you're just starting there or maybe creating a structure for the first time, as Rajat was in our first question, episode 419, a very useful place for you to start. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have not already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That's going to give you access to the entire library since 2011, searchable by topic. It'll also give you access to the weekly leadership guides. Those come to your inbox on Wednesdays. They include all the resources from that week's episode, the notes. Uh, in addition, many articles, resources, other podcast videos that I found during the week that I think will be useful to you. And of course, access to all of the free audio courses inside our free membership. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go. Just set that up and you'll be off and running in just a few seconds. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Annie Duke to the show. She is going to join me to discuss the way to make better decisions. We've talked about decision-making on the show before, but she has got a really fabulous framework to help us do that better. Join me for that next Monday. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.